Hello and welcome to the fifth and final episode in Herbert Smith Freehill's podcast series on construction arbitration. I'm Liz Cantor, a senior associate and solicitor advocate in the International Arbitration Group in London. I'm Craig Tevendale, head of the International Arbitration Group in London. And I'm Kemi Wood, an associate and solicitor advocate in the Construction Disputes Group in London. Today we'll be talking about managing the procedure in construction arbitrations. Careful case management is crucial in any arbitration to ensure that the dispute is managed cost-effectively. This is especially true in the context of construction arbitrations, which tend to be factually and technically complex and very document-heavy. There is a perennial focus on how the international arbitration process can be made more efficient, with the aim of reducing the time and cost involved in reaching an award. A number of innovative procedural approaches have been proposed, and we'll be talking about some of those today, focusing in particular on the first case management conference, tribunal fact-finding, controlling document production, and streamlining fact-witness and expert-witness evidence. We'll also look at some important innovations in arbitration technology and how these can help the process. Kemi, can we start by looking at the views of construction arbitration users? on procedural efficiency. Absolutely, Craig. In November last year, Queen Mary University of London published their ninth International Dispute Resolution Survey, which focused on how to drive efficiency in international construction arbitration. And this survey identified numerous points in the construction arbitration process where efficiency could be improved, which I suppose won't come as a surprise to most parties who've been involved in construction arbitration. The survey very much reflected what we've seen in practice with actors in the construction industry really calling for a move towards making the resolution of construction disputes a more efficient, less time-consuming and costly process. Thanks, Kemi. The introduction of the Prague Rules also forms a key part of this push for greater efficiency in arbitration. Let's focus for a moment on the key changes to arbitral procedure proposed by the Prague Rules and how they might potentially be applied to construction arbitration. Liz, can you tell us a bit more about the Prague Rules, please? Yes, of course, Craig. The Prague Rules were launched in December 2018. They can be adopted in institutional or ad hoc arbitration, either in whole or in part, with the aim of increasing the efficiency of arbitral proceedings. The working group that drafted the Prague Rules comprised representatives drawn mainly from civil rather than common law traditions. Accordingly, the rules adopt a more inquisitorial approach to arbitration in which the tribunal proactively manages the arbitral procedure. This, of course, differs from the approach seen in most international arbitrations, which tend to be run on more adversarial lines. The key focus of the Prague Rules is to strip out unnecessary delay and cost from the arbitration by streamlining the procedure from the start. The rules suggest a number of ways in which the efficiency of an arbitration could be maximised, and I know we will talk about some of these in a moment. As you say, Liz, the Prague rules encourage tribunals to take a more active role in managing arbitration proceedings. It's clear that the tribunal's management of proceedings is currently a concern for many parties to construction arbitration. In the Queen Mary 2019 survey, 51% of respondents specifically identified poor case management by arbitrators as a cause of inefficiency in international construction arbitrations. The emergence of the Prague rules appears to reflect calls for arbitrators to take a more proactive approach to managing cases and unburden themselves of an undue paranoia that their awards may be challenged for lack of due process. 
which some have suggested can make arbitrators reluctant to use all of the remedies and powers already available to them. Well, of course, the Prague rules remain relatively new. There have certainly been cases under the Prague rules, but as yet there has not been widespread adoption of them. Well, it remains to be seen whether that will change. The Prague rules will be particularly useful for less factually complex cases, and those which turn less on oral evidence, perhaps, which may not justify the usual procedural approaches. Yes, I'd query whether there will actually be much take-up of the Prague rules in large construction arbitrations, because there is an argument that similar gains in efficiency can already be realised under the IBA rules on the taking of evidence. The IBA rules remain very popular in construction arbitrations and do provide a tribunal with wide discretion to proactively manage the proceedings. So if you have a robust arbitral tribunal who are very experienced in construction disputes, then frankly, there doesn't seem to be much of an incentive to move away from the IBA rules, which the parties and indeed the tribunal will likely be more familiar with. But just because efficiency is theoretically possible under the IBA rules, that doesn't necessarily always equate to efficiency in practice. It's important to consider in the context of each individual construction arbitration, what procedural steps can be streamlined to minimise unnecessary cost and delay. The ICC Commission recently made some helpful recommendations on procedural efficiency in its 2019 report. I know we'll be coming back to some of these later. Before we run through some of the key stages in the construction arbitration and the ways in which the procedure could be streamlined, let's step back and take a look at the arbitration clause itself. This, of course, can have a huge impact on the procedure for the arbitration. Yes, that's true, Craig. Procedural efficiency should really be considered when the construction contract is drafted. For example, a key consideration is whether the arbitration will proceed under the auspices of a particular institution, like the International Chamber of Commerce or the London Court of International Arbitration. The advantage of institutional arbitration is that the arbitration will be subject to a clear procedural framework as set out in those institutional rules. This can be especially important at the beginning of the arbitration to ensure the smooth appointment of the tribunal and to assist with the logistics, such as ensuring that the parties comply with the procedural deadlines for filing the request for arbitration and response, and put up the funds required for the continuation of the arbitration. And I should add that many construction disputes are resolved through ad hoc arbitration, where a simpler and more streamlined procedure can be agreed Whether to choose ad hoc or institutional arbitration will be a decision on a case-by-case basis. But having said that, I would agree that institutional arbitration may offer a number of marked advantages in the procedural context. Liz, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, Craig. The institution is also often involved in the selection and appointment of arbitrators, as parties may agree that the institution can appoint the tribunal. The tribunal will be responsible for all key case management decisions unless the parties can reach agreement on them. This means that the selection of an experienced arbitrator who can proactively manage the procedure and make robust case management decisions is absolutely crucial in achieving a streamlined procedure. I'd also add that an arbitrator who takes the time to engage with the issues in an arbitration from the very start is able to make much more informed case management decisions It's for this reason that potential arbitral candidates are often required to provide details of their availability before their appointment is confirmed. Yes, this is important. 
It can be really frustrating when the tribunal doesn't engage with the issues in dispute early on, and this can have an adverse impact on the efficiency of the arbitration. So, for example, you might get to the document production phase, but the tribunal is really reluctant to dismiss certain categories of requests for documents, largely because they haven't yet grappled with the issues in the case and prefer to take a more broad brush approach in case they are later criticised by the parties for having prejudged the dispute. But that definitely has time and cost implications later on. Yes. Unfortunately, there are cases in which recalcitrant parties adopt so-called guerrilla tactics to try to slow down an arbitration. Other than the usual threat of cost consequences, there's often not much you can do if the tribunal does not act robustly. For example, if a party makes multiple applications to extend procedural deadlines or simply does not comply with procedural orders, you're reliant on the tribunal to take action. Ideally, you'd be seeking some sort of unless order to ensure that the proceedings continue as planned or inviting the tribunal to draw adverse inferences if, for example, a party does not produce documents that it has been ordered to produce. In such circumstances, the conduct of the arbitration relies entirely on the approach of the tribunal. Returning to the topic of the arbitration clause itself, a further consideration is whether more than one dispute might arise between different parties to the transaction or project or in relation to different contracts. Ensuring that different contracts contain compatible arbitration clauses and that they provide the parties consent in advance will increase the likelihood that disputes can be consolidated or that all relevant parties can be joined to an arbitration where you want that to happen. These points of joinder and consolidation can be a key procedural consideration in the construction arbitration context. Kemi, can you tell us a little more about that? Most definitely. On a construction project, big or small, there will be a number of contractual parties involved, and that number is almost certainly going to be greater than two. Commonly, you'll have an employer who enters into a construction contract with a main contractor, and the main contractor then enters into subcontracts with any number of subcontractors who will perform specific parts of the works, whether that's piling, mechanical and electrical services or steelworks. So you end up with one project which is contractually built on multiple interconnected contracts with multiple parties. While arbitration rules and some national laws can provide for consolidation of the proceedings, the consent of the parties is still usually required and often the rules and laws just don't provide the certainty that can be achieved by a well-drafted arbitration clause. Otherwise, you might find yourself in a situation where all of the contracts provide for arbitration but they don't all consistently provide for consolidation of arbitration proceedings, so you risk ending up with parallel proceedings. It is also critically important that you ensure that the arbitration clauses across related contracts are actually compatible by, for example, specifying the same seat of the arbitration, the same institutional rules and the same number of arbitrators. Yes, considering the potential disputes that might arise and catering for those explicitly in the arbitration clause can save a lot of time and money further down the line. Now, we mentioned earlier that it is important to take control of the arbitration procedure from the very start. The key to determining the arbitral procedure is often the first case management conference, after which the tribunal drafts the procedural order. Liz, this first case management conference or procedural hearing has been a focus in the Prague rules, hasn't it? Yes, Craig. The Prague rules require the tribunal to hold an early case management conference without any unjustified delay after receiving the case file. 
It is suggested that the tribunal will clarify with the parties at the CMC the relief sought, the legal issues and facts which are in dispute, and will also set the timetable for the arbitration. There are further measures which a Prague Rules Tribunal can take to assist in proactively managing the case. For example, it can set out the facts that it believes are disputed and undisputed, and consider the actions that need to be taken to ascertain the factual and legal basis of the dispute. If appropriate, the Tribunal can even give its preliminary views on the applicable burden of proof, the relief the parties are seeking, the disputed issues and the weight and relevance of evidence submitted by the parties. Well, of course, that may help to streamline the arbitration as the parties may be encouraged to drop certain elements of their case. But I can see that this provision must also be used with care. It could give rise to challenge by parties who feel that tribunals have formed a premature view on the merits of the case before properly considering all of the relevant evidence. As we mentioned before, it's also not yet clear how widely adopted some of these provisions are going to be. Separately, it's a good idea to raise Scott schedules at the first CMZ. These are tables which list each head of claim and summarise the party's position on each of them. This can help to give the parties and tribunal a good overview of the dispute to see where the key issues lie. They are often used in construction arbitrations because they provide a much simpler way to compare the parties' respective positions, whether on defects cases or valuation disputes or delay claims. The tribunal should also use that first case management conference or procedural hearing to take more practical decisions about submissions, including their format, timing and length. Interestingly, under the Prague rules, the tribunal is encouraged to consider whether there should be restrictions on the number of submissions that may be made by the parties and the maximum length of those submissions. Perhaps a challenge at a very early stage of the case, but I would certainly have welcomed page limits in a number of the cases that I've worked on over the years. Yes, one issue that often crops up on the subject of submissions in construction arbitration is whether they should follow the English court-type pleadings, where the parties first file their statements of case, followed by document production, and then factual and expert evidence, or whether instead to adopt a memorial style, where each party files their statement of case alongside all supporting evidence. There are advantages and disadvantages to both approaches, but in my experience, the memorial style can be more efficient, as the parties are given the opportunity to present a more developed case. This can then narrow the issues to be addressed in the hearing itself. Now, the ICC report that Kemi mentioned before also suggests that the tribunal should invite the parties to agree in a procedure for the possible use of sealed offers in the arbitration for settlement purposes. The report notes that sealed offers can be especially important in a construction arbitration because construction claims are often inflated at the outset and in most cases the losing party will have to pay the successful party's legal costs, which can be considerable. I can certainly see that including sealed offers as a potential procedural step could encourage the parties to turn their minds to settlement early on without the concern that settlement is to be seen as a sign of weakness or lack of conviction in your case. Now, it's important to attempt to secure protection on costs where sensible offers are rejected, often unreasonably, by your opponent. We talked earlier about the inquisitorial approach that the tribunal is encouraged to adopt under the Prague rules. 
The tribunal is encouraged to consider whether any actions can be taken to ascertain the factual and legal basis of both parties' cases. And this is likely to involve some of the tribunal's fact-finding powers, including orders to preserve evidence or site inspections. Whether or not a tribunal should undertake a site visit is often a question that comes up in construction arbitrations more generally. The ICC report notes that while site visits are often useful, they must be justified by their benefits and cost saving. In construction disputes, there are usually arguments about the progress of the works or whether the works are defective. And of course, you can see how it would be beneficial for the tribunal to see the status of the works with their own eyes. But you really have to do a bit of a cost benefit analysis here. Realistically, at most, you'd expect the tribunal to come away from a site visit with a general sense of the status of the project. There can be significant transport and accommodation costs involved. So parties may want to consider using photography or videography of the site to achieve the same end. I once worked on an arbitration where the tribunal had travelled from the UK to Qatar in order to visit the site and the parties obviously incurred significant costs to do this. But then a year or so later, the arbitration proceedings were delayed by a dispute between the parties over which of the site visit photographs should be provided to the tribunal to act as an aid memoir, leading to even more costs being incurred. Now, perhaps one of the most radical provisions of the Prague Rules concerns document production because the Prague rules provide a starting assumption that parties should avoid any form of document production, including e-discovery. The parties must make any requests for document production at the first case management conference or procedural hearing, and later requests will only be allowed in exceptional circumstances. Well, on one view, that approach would make the arbitral process more efficient and save costs, But I can certainly see an argument that limiting the document universe in this way may be far from straightforward in construction arbitrations, which tend to be very document heavy. What are your thoughts on limiting disclosure in the construction arbitration context, Kenny? Well, in the 2019 Queen Mary survey on construction arbitration, a third of respondents were actually prepared to forgo document production altogether. And there is certainly appetite in the construction industry to at least limit document production. The difficulty remains that the volume of relevant documentation really marks out construction arbitration from general commercial arbitrations. In practice, I think it's unlikely that we'll see many construction arbitrations using the default Prague rules position um, of the tribunal avoiding document production altogether, including avoiding all e-discovery. But the Prague rules are a useful reminder that controlling document production as far as possible is important in construction arbitration, where large-scale production is commonplace. Well, usually tribunals will order the use of Redfern schedules to limit document requests to documents or categories of documents that are relevant and material to the outcome of the case, with the objective of minimising the risk of phishing expeditions. But the sheer volume of documents involved in construction arbitrations means it is inherently a time-consuming and expensive stage in the arbitration proceedings. The use of technology can make a real difference to the cost and time involved in the document production phase of a construction arbitration. As the ICC report notes, in some cases it may be possible to use the project's existing databases, especially where they have been created to be shared between the parties. But more often, the parties will wish to use a specific document management tool 
which allows for the documents to be uploaded and sorted chronologically. This then allows electronic searches to be carried out using keyword searches, and of course, for electronic rather than hard copy document production, which saves on time and cost. You can also tag documents by topic to help categorise the documents. Using predictive coding can also save a lot of time if there are hundreds of thousands of documents to review. I think we'll be coming back to the use of technology and arbitration in broader terms in a little bit. Well, on a different topic, another significant element of the Prague rules is the call for the tribunal to limit oral witness evidence at hearings, particularly from fact witnesses. The tribunal is empowered to refuse oral witness evidence where it considers the evidence to be irrelevant, immaterial, unreasonably burdensome, duplicative, or for any other reasons not necessary for the resolution of the dispute. The intention here is clearly to empower tribunals to exclude or limit evidence without worrying that they'll face a challenge from an unsuccessful party about losing the opportunity to present its case. But this obviously requires a delicate balancing act for any tribunal relying on this provision. In addition, at the hearing, the examination of any fact witnesses is to be conducted under the direction and control of the arbitral tribunal. The tribunal can also reject a question posed to the witness if it considers it to be irrelevant, redundant, not material to the outcome of the case, or for other reasons. This obviously draws from the civil law inquisitorial approach, which is certainly different from the arbitrations that I've been involved in, where the party representatives tend to lead the cross-examination. This call for a more inquisitorial approach to witnesses seems to match the view of many construction arbitration users. 36% of respondents to the Queen Mary 2019 survey considered that the efficiency of hearings and submissions would be improved where arbitrators posed questions to witnesses. It certainly sounds an efficient way to proceed in theory, but it clearly relies on the tribunal being very well prepared and having given careful thought to the evidence required to come to a decision on questioning. The ICC's 2019 report also recommended the use of fact witness panels where many fact witnesses have information on the same subject. This is on the basis that these panels can reduce repetitive evidence and can better bring out the key facts. The ICC report also highlights that using a panel may permit concentrated attention on the issues by individual theme or topic. I have to say that I've never seen fact witness panels used in any of the hearings I've attended, but their use does seem to be an emerging trend, as parties and tribunals are increasingly focused on improving efficiency. I can see that this approach could work well, though, given that it's largely borrowing from the widely accepted technique of hot-tubbing expert witnesses. Yes, I could see that a fact witness panel could work well if there is a particular factual issue in dispute, such as, for example, what was said at a particular meeting, and the relevant witnesses then give their evidence as to what was said at that meeting at the same time. Let's move on to briefly discuss expert evidence, a key element of construction arbitration, as we discussed in episode two of this podcast. Yes, Craig, technical experts play a really vital role in most construction arbitrations. The factual matrix of the dispute can itself be very technical and complex, and the tribunal may rely heavily on expert evidence on those technical aspects. Expert evidence will usually also be relied on in respect of delay analysis or calculating the quantum of claims. The results of the 2019 Queen Mary survey reflect my own experience, which is that appointing experts at an early stage leads to a better understanding of the case and clarity of evidence. 
And there's a good argument to say that the earlier the respective experts meet, the better. If the experts can agree methodologies, identify the issues which are agreed and those that are disputed, this can really help to narrow down the issues in dispute and to maximise efficiency. Conversely, if you have experts whose reports are at cross-purposes and who do not meet to prepare a joint statement of issues agreed and disputed, this can lead to inefficiency in the arbitration. And just to add that, under the Prague rules, the tribunal may appoint its own experts, either at the request of a party or on its own initiative. Whilst the use of a tribunal-appointed expert does not preclude party-appointed experts from giving evidence, clearly it may limit the scope for party-appointed experts, which could in turn limit the scope of expert evidence and make the process more cost-efficient. Having a tribunal-appointed expert is an interesting idea for the right case, though it's unlikely to become the norm in large construction arbitrations anytime soon. Parties will almost always want to call their own expert, given the critical importance of expert evidence in construction disputes. Thanks, Liz. And now finally, before we wrap up, let's talk about the improvements in technology which can assist in the efficient running of any arbitration, but particularly construction arbitrations. A key example of this is the development of online case management platforms, which provide an end-to-end tool for managing cases online. These have the potential to radically alter the way in which we manage documents. Yes, Craig. Whilst it's already possible to file documents electronically, such as through the LCIA's online filing system, these new types of platform will allow users to do many more things. In particular, they will allow case teams to share annotations, hyperlinks and chronologies in the cloud, centralise the examination of evidence and create timelines and chronologies linked to particular documents. The document universe on the online platforms can then form the basis of both document production and the electronic clearing bundle, thereby significantly reducing the costs associated with printing, circulating and updating bundles. It will also be much easier to conduct digital hearings using such platforms, which has obviously become a much more relevant consideration in recent times. The COVID-19 pandemic has dramatically accelerated the digitalisation of arbitration procedure, which has the potential for great efficiency gains in future. Thanks, Kemi and Liz. And that brings us to the end of this episode and also the end of our construction arbitration podcast series. We hope you've found our podcast helpful. If you'd like to discuss any of the points we've raised in this episode, then please do get in touch with me, Liz or Kemi, or your usual Herbert Smith Freehills contact. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode.